Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, my name's Mark Billingham, and welcome to another brand new episode of A Stab in the Dark, the alibi podcast that delves without armed backup or protective clothing of any kind into the murderous, marvelous worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama. We've interviewed some of the biggest names in the crime world in past episodes. I'm talking fictional crime, obviously. And if you don't believe me, just have a route through our archive on your podcast provider of choice for irrefutable evidence. And today, we're delighted to say that one of the most talked-about crime novelists in America, Liz Moore, is joining us here in our well-appointed, biscuitless incident room in West London. Liz's fourth novel, Long Bright River, was glowingly reviewed in the New York Times and was featured on Good Morning America, no less, and we've managed to nab her for an in-depth interrogation during her visit to the UK. We'll be talking about Liz's extraordinary book, her hometown of Philadelphia, the opioid crisis that's now endemic in the US, and what role crime fiction can play in shining a light on social, economic and, dare I say it, political issues. So, without further ado, let's introduce you to a name that you're going to be hearing a lot more of in the future. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Liz, welcome to A Step in the Dark. Thank you, Mark. Very um, happy to be here. Uh, it's very nice to have you here. Now, uh, Long Bright River is your fourth novel, but your first crime novel. Let me just get this out of the way good and early. Are you happy to call it a crime novel? Yeah, it's been, I think a crime novel is a good word for it. Um, it's been called multi-genre by some reviewers, which I'm also happy with. Yeah. But yeah. Because it's a blend. You do come across an awful lot of literary novelists who write a crime novel, and they go, oh, "I'm not a crime. This no, is not a crime novel." That's that is not. I'm not interested <laughs> in saying that. I love uh, I love to read crime fiction and watch um, like detective film and television, and I'm a, an avid consumer of crime related things. So I'm I'm happy to be part of that tradition. Well, that is good. And nervous or, also about being part of that pr- tradition. It, it would have been, no, it's very welcoming. Come on in. Uh it might have been a very short episode otherwise. <laughs> um 
So before we get down to what listeners can actually expect from the book, what, what drew you to the crime genre then? I mean, you've said you're a big fan of it, but mm-hmm. what, were there any writers you read or writers that crime writers you could say have influenced you? Yeah. Um, when I was a teenager, I read a lot of kind of classic um, crime fiction, much of it British or part of, I, I mean, obviously I read Agatha Christie when I was a, a kid even, Um I read Dorothy Sayers. I really liked Gowdy Knight when I was in high school. Right. Um, uh, who else? Nio Marsh, uh, who I think is Kiwi. Is she New yeah, Zealand. She's New Zealand. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that those were sort of like my very early introductions to the world of crime writing. Um, the golden age. You got all the golden age out yeah, of the way early. Yeah. I uh, and I, but I, I haven't read them in many years. Um, contemporary crime writers I love are. Unsurprisingly, people like Tana French, I adore her work and read it. Um, and um, I like Dennis Lehane, and he was kind enough to read this book and give it a nice quote. Yes, he a very great. nice quote. I grew up in Massachusetts, so he, his writing about Boston is kind of, um, feels like home to me. Yeah, Dickensian and Gennaro books mm-hmm, are just mm-hmm, wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful crime novels. Um, your previous books, The Words of Every Song, The Unseen World and Heft, were all stories about people who are disconnected in some way and then reconnected to, to one degree or another. Um, and even though Long Bright River is your first crime novel, that same theme kind of underpins this one too, yeah? Yeah. In some ways, it feels like a natural progression for me because even the books of mine that haven't been categorized as crime dramas, um, they always include an element of mystery or suspense and um the figures in them are always kind of working to solve a puzzle um, uh, until this point, never crime related, but questions about identity or ancestry or things like that have always been at the heart of my other work. Okay. Well, let's, let's get into the nitty gritty then of Long Bright River, because it's not only a big book, it's a big book, <laughs> uh, but also in terms of it's big and, you know, when it comes to the issues it deals with, just tell us a little about what people can expect. Sure. Um, Long Bright River is set in the neighborhood of Kensington in Philadelphia, which is a real neighborhood that I've spent a lot of time in over the years. Um, And Kensington is one of the places in the States that's been particularly hard hit by the opioid crisis. So I never know how much to say about the opioid crisis here because I don't want to assume that people know a lot about it or a little about it. Um, It's something we're hearing a lot more about. Define it briefly or tell you my... um, So very briefly... Uh, obviously there have been many waves of addiction in the States and outside the States and and in in the UK too, Uh, specifically um, addiction to heroin and opioid products. This wave in the US is largely caused by the over-prescription of pills such as OxyContin beginning in the the mid nineties. Usually uh, typically described as being caused by, um, uh, wish to make a big profit on the part of companies like Purdue Pharma. Um, so in our system of privatized medicine, doctors have been highly incentivized, almost bribed to overprescribe pills such as OxyContin and to underplay how addictive they are. So a, a whole generation, multiple generations of people have been overprescribed narcotic medication like OxyContin. And then when their prescription ends, they find themselves physically addicted, turn to trying to buy those drugs on the street, find that that's very, very expensive, and so um, turn to heroin, which is a much cheaper alternative. 
and find themselves um, really in the depths of a very serious addiction. And it's caused, um, it, it is so serious that it has caused the life expectancy of certain demographics in the U.S. to decrease for the first time in um in many generations. So it's a, it's a hugely serious problem in the States. And I understand that it's um, spread elsewhere as well. Um, but maybe there are different routes to that. So, so that's the opioid crisis in a nutshell. Um, and the book is set in a neighborhood that's been hard hit. It's the story of two sisters, one of whom is the younger of whom is suffering from addiction to opioids and doing sex work to fund her addiction. Um, and the older of whom, Mickey, is a police officer who um, patrols the same neighborhood. And so when, at the start of the book, Casey, the younger, goes missing, her older sister, Mickey, takes it upon herself to go looking for her sister off the job, which gets her into some trouble. So, that, I mean, it's a story that, that I understand had been sort of brewing for a while. This wasn't, this wasn't a book that was knocked off in a year or mm-hmm. anything. You know, this was, this was a story you were thinking about for a long time. When did you decide it was going to have those crime elements, that it was, there was going to be a mystery, there was going to be a missing person? That's a good question. Um, originally, I wrote a short story. Um, I first got to the neighborhood in 2009. I was there as part of a photojournalism project and was writing nonfiction about the neighborhood. And I began doing community work in the neighborhood, teaching free writing workshops at a women's day shelter. And all of that sort of served as inspiration for a short story I wrote um, years ago at this point that was kind of unsuccessful, and I put it aside for a time. In that short story, Mickey and Casey were present, but Mickey was not a police officer. She had other work, and um, it never had the kind of narrative urgency that it needed, um, and I knew that it wouldn't sustain a whole novel. So I put it aside, and only when I came back to it did I decide that um, if Mickey were a police officer, that would create and Casey were to go missing, that would create a lot of narrative tension. And that's when I really started thinking of it as um, potentially a crime drama. Um, and it kind of took off from there. But at, at, at the heart is that relationship you've mentioned between uh, the sisters, um, Mickey and Casey. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, a, it's a complicated relationship, to say the least, isn't it? Yeah, they're they're actually estranged when the novel begins. They were extremely close growing up. Um, they were raised in a family that had experienced great losses from addiction. Both of their parents um, are not present in their lives during because of addiction. So they were raised by a grandmother who is a complicated character, but largely was not a a kind parental figure to this the is girls. G, right? G, yep. Um, and of course, G has her own issues going on, but. Um, Anyway, that shared sort of terrible childhood bonded the sisters irreversibly. But as adults, Mickey has followed this. They've, they've found themselves on two very different paths. And Mickey sort of self-identifies at the start of the novel as someone extremely morally upright, as somebody who always does the right thing and lives by the law and has a sort of <clears throat> misapprehension about herself, in fact, that she's, she's the good sister and she can do no wrong. Of course, that understanding becomes complicated as the book goes on. Um, and Casey self-identifies as like a mess-up who always does everything wrong. And that understanding, too, becomes complicated as the book goes on. Um, so they're estranged at the start, but they I think the bond between them forged in their childhood is what causes Mickey to 
feel the need to go looking for her sister despite their estrangement. I've, I've always believed that um, when it comes to creating suspense, which is something as a crime writer you get asked all the time, you know, what are the, what are the tricks to creating suspense? It's all about characters. If you give readers characters they can engage with and care about, you know, you've got suspense from page one. They know what kind of book it is, for heaven's sake. You know, they know there's stuff coming. And I think one of the one of the things I loved about this book, especially with Mickey, I mean, most of the time with Casey, very difficult to talk, with, you know, without spoilers. But most of the time you're seeing Casey in the past tense when you're, because uh, some of the book is set now, some of the book mm. is set in the past. But the great thing about Mickey is you've not made her an easy character to love. Mm. You know, she's she's a very complicated character. She's sort of, she's shut off, she's cold, she doesn't share. I mean, you find out why that is. But it would have been terribly easy for you to make Mickey the kind of, you know, this blue-collar kind of great with character with a heart. But she's not. She's much more complicated than that. Yeah, I had no interest in writing her as um, a traditional hero. I had no interest in making her perfect. I think it's much more interesting to consider the ways in which people are judgmental about addiction. And at the start, Casey, I'm sorry, Mickey is very judgmental about her sister. She says she has this sort of like impassioned monologue early in the book about how they grew up in the same household, but but or we grew up in the same household because it's in the first person, but I made the choice not to be addicted. And my sister um, has always felt that she had it harder, but in fact, I think I did. And um, she has this kind of complicated understanding of Casey as having made the choice to fall into addiction, which of course we know there's a huge number of factors that go into addiction. And um, for, for, for the majority of people, it's not in fact it's a choice. It's not a choice at all. And, um, and so um, Mickey's, uh, you know, her understanding of that gets complicated and I hope the reader's understanding of that will also be complicated by the end of the book. Oh, it is. Yeah. Uh, um, I want to talk a bit about, about Philadelphia because um, places like New York and L.A. and, and, and obviously Baltimore uh, in recent years, very yeah. been well represented in crime fiction and, and TV drama, but Philadelphia not so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I was, you know, I found out a lot about Philadelphia from reading. In a nutshell, Philadelphia. Yeah, <laughs> Philadelphia is a great city. Um, my husband's family is, he grew up in the area, so um, I had been hearing about Philadelphia for a long time before I moved there. Um, and I've lived there for 11 years now, and um, I think Philadelphians will never perceive me as Philadelphian <laughs> because I came from elsewhere. But at this point, you know, I've lived there. It's the place I've lived the longest as an adult, and I have no plans to leave. I have a house there. I have kids there. My kids are Philadelphian. Um, in some ways, it's very insular um, and protective. Philadelphians love to disparage Philadelphia, but nobody else can. Right. It's that kind of place. I like a lot of places, I guess. Um, yeah, Birmingham. Birmingham in this country is a lot like that. Yeah. You, you know, yeah. they can slag it off all they like, but anybody else right. dares to do it. Right, exactly. You know, if a comedian yeah. comes on stage in a comedy club in Birmingham yeah. goes, it's a bit shit here, isn't it? They'll just be booed <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah, that sounds but, right. But the Brummies will do that. That yeah. sounds right. Um, very, really dedicated um, sports fans in Philadelphia too, like like probably Birmingham. Um, I, um, I think of Philadelphia as a place also with a, complex history because it has two different associations with it. Earlier in its history, it was very, it was considered very sort of blue bloody, like a Philadelphia story with Catherine Hepburn is outside of the U.S. I think a lot of um, um, countries have that understanding of Philadelphia because for many years it was the home of huge American families with famous last names. 
But it's also a very working class city, and um, there's that tradition too. And and most recently, it's become a city that um, kind of I would say has a chip on its shoulder about being labeled. The the New York Times wrote this now notorious article that called Philadelphia the sixth borough because it's very close to New York City. And many New Yorkers who were getting priced out of New York City were moving to Philadelphia and even sometimes commuting to New York for work. And so Philadelphians wanted nothing to do with that label. They said, we are our own city. We don't need to be New York's sixth borough. Thank you very much. And so that's most recently Philadelphia has is, I think, in the process of trying to forge its own identity um, as it, as its own independent city with its own long tradition of literature and of music, of art, of certainly uh, some people think of it as the birthplace of the U.S. It's where the Constitution was signed right. and things like that. So I mean, it's, it, it very much is a major character in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it comes across with, in, with in, incredible clarity. But, and I wonder if not being a native kind of helps in that, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've, we've had a lot of writers on, on this show who've talked about uh, you know, place as it's always been a, a huge part of crime fiction is, is that sense of place. Um, and some writers need a distance. Some writers need to be able to, you know, to know those streets they're writing about absolutely inside out. But other people, there's a, a, a British writer called Peter Robinson who for years wrote brilliantly about Yorkshire while he was living in Toronto. Yeah. He he needed yeah. that distance, you know. Do you, yeah. Is it easier for you not to be for it not to be in your bones, kind of thing? Maybe. Um, I, you know, it probably gives me the feeling of being an objective observer of what's going on, not having grown up there. A lot of what I encounter feels novel to me or interesting in ways it might not feel to somebody who grew up right in the city. Um, it, it Sometimes it does take me a long time to process a place. My last book was called The Unseen World, and that was set in Boston, which is, I, I grew up right outside Boston, but I had no interest in writing about it until uh, about a decade after I left, at which point I decided I wanted to set a book there. So, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe I do need some distance from a place to feel like I want to write about it. But um, I've, I, never, I've never set a book in a place I've, I haven't ever lived. So I guess I can't have that much distance, yeah. <laughs> at least not at this point in my career. And how long, how long, you've been there 11 years, did you say? Mm-hmm. How many years have you got to be there before you're allowed to slag it off? I have no idea. Is there we'll a kind to, of? <laughs> we'll have to find a. Do you get a, a letter through the mail, yeah. kind of going? Now you can say what you, you damn yeah, well like about Philadelphia. Right. Um, we will be talking more to Liz about what role crime fiction can play in dealing with social issues, and lots more about Long Bright River after the break. But now it's time to see what our roving reporter, our man with the spyglass, Paul Hirons, has been up to. Paul, what have you got for us? <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Now, if you've recently been watching Series 2 of Blood, you'll know that it's one of the best new crime dramas around. And I'm delighted to say that the award-winning creator, Sophie Petzl, is joining me on the line. Sophie, welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Uh, hello. It's uh, it's nice to be here. I'm sorry if you can hear geese suddenly in the background. I'm <laughs> going to try and move somewhere where there aren't geese. Yeah, no, geese are fine. Bring <laughs> them into the interview. That's fine. I'll be, I'll be interested to, to hear what they've got to say about blood. Now, uh, if uh, any of your listeners, God forbid, haven't seen blood, how would you describe it to them? Well, Blood Season 1 uh, follows a young woman whose mother um, dies and she starts to suspect that her father may have been involved in her mother's death. And over the course of the week, uh, this is Carolina Maynard's cat uh, and her father being Adrian Dunbar playing Jim. And um, so over the course of the week, with all the preparations for the funeral and the family get-togethers, this young woman, cat, is trying to un- unravel 
the mystery of what really happened to her mum. Season, and so this is me now trying to describe season two without spoiling season one <laughs> either for anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, but season two basically picks up a year after season one ended um, with, uh, Jim re- with Jim returning to the family fold and um, finding that uh, things, are, things have moved on since he left at the end of season one and that his eldest daughter, Fiona, has deteriorated somewhat with the same condition that um, uh, plagued her mother, her most neural disease. And um, he basically walks into an environment that's um, uh, a tinderbox waiting to be set alight. And, you know, there is a mystery at the heart of season two as well um, involving his eldest daughter that uh, he finds himself unwittingly at the heart of. And that all kind of unravels across season two. So that sounds particularly vague, but I'm trying to be as spoiler-free as possible. I mean, that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you because, I mean, it's a family drama, but it's also a whodunit as well. But in both series, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, when you begin yeah, to write yeah. something like this, I mean, where do you start? Does does the family come, the family drama part of it come first or do you start with the mystery? Well, um, a lot of it began uh, for me with discussions between myself and uh, the producer and executive, uh, Jonathan Fisher, Um where we would often talk about, you know, how do you do a non-police crime? You know, because myself and Jonathan were very good friends anyway, and we often, you know, we'll we'll sit, we'll go around each other's houses and watch whole seasons of Line of Duty mm. um, into the into into the middle of the night. It, we're, we're massive thriller junkies, and um, you know, it felt like it felt like there was room in the sort of British drama canon to find a way to do a thriller that didn't that didn't centre on the police. Like, mm. how do you um, you know, tell a kind of compelling crime mystery where a normal person is sort of at the heart of it and thinking that there's something really fun and interesting in the inability of a regular person to solve a crime and yet they're kind of forced into that position. And it also felt like it's something that a lot of people can just relate to in yeah. a way that you can't quite relate to, you know, a police officer investigating a police crime, we can relate to a daughter who thinks her dad might be up to no good. We all have mysteries and questions within our own families, I think. Some of the group scenes yeah. are fantastic. The the first communion scene in the second series, and there's also mm. a, a kind of a big dinner uh, between two families, actually. Um you're yeah. you're really good at kind of twisting the screw in those in those kind of uh, scenarios and. You seem like you seem to think that these these are the perfect uh, moments for secrets to come out, for people to say the wrong thing, and then suddenly, uh, as you, it's a tinderbox, isn't it? And I mean, I think most most mm. families will recognise that. For me, there was a real breakthrough moment in 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 kind of understanding the tone of the show in working on season one and episode two. There's a moment where. Um, Cat comes home to find that the family have met with the priest to discuss their mother's funeral without her. Mm. And there's some disagreement as to whether she was told and she'd forgotten or whether she wasn't told at all. And I knew that in that scene, what needed to come out was that Cat had found some incriminating evidence against her dad. And I kept looking for the cool sort of police drama way of getting that out, sort of like, yeah. you know, cornering your suspect and throwing the evidence at them. And, and I just I remember just sort of realizing, well, if this was me, I would just, in feeling so persecuted and cornered, I would get so angry and so righteous, <laughs> I would just say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And and I think you often feel when you're writing that your characters have to be so much smarter than you and cooler than you and do the right thing and say the right thing. And actually, you know, you get that truth and that kind of 
you know, fist-chewingly authentic horror mm. of people doing entirely the wrong thing and uh, by by making them sort of flawed and truthful. And so, you know, once I'd kind of unlocked that in season one, it was, we were sort of off to the races, I think. Yeah, right. And season two just doubled down on that. Everybody has something that's going on with somebody else across the table. It's all about the shared looks and about what people aren't saying. And as much as anything, that's, you know, getting this across, getting, you know, the fact that somebody could be talking about chicken when they're talking about something else entirely, as much of that is down to the phenomenal performances and the direction and the photography to really get across that sense of subtext. Because for mm. me, like, the best bits of blood are all about the subtext. Mm, absolutely. And um, you mentioned uh, Jim, Jim Hogan, the lead character, I guess, mm -hmm. although it's a fantastic ensemble cast and of both actors and characters. And then you mentioned Line of Duty earlier. And of course, those two worlds collide because Adrian yes. Dunbar, no, none other than Ted Hastings from Line of Duty, is Jim Hogan in this. What, Mother of God. What a thrill that must have been to have the big H absolutely. involved. Well, the, the hilarious thing was, you know, way back when, when we were first pitching this, and I and uh, I think I joked with Jonathan, who um, developed this with me and produced it. Um, oh, and obviously Jim is played by Adrian Dunbar, right. and we sort of just laughed and went, "Well, yeah, obviously. I mean, yeah, great." And I think we went into the pitch meetings and said, "Yeah," and you know, imagine Jim Hogan as Adrian Dunbar, and people's eyes like to go, "Oh, great, yeah. Imagine if, imagine if." And mm -hmm. you know, when you're doing a kind of a small show like this, and you're talking about somebody who's on a who's on the most successful primetime BBC show in recent history, yeah, yeah. you're not really talking. You're talking sort of idealistically with stars in your eyes. You're not talking in, in, in a kind of realistic way. Mm. And so then, as the process sort of you know moved on and moved on, and we got greenlit and we started casting, we were just so fortunate to talk to a casting director, a wonderful like Louise Kiley, who who was able to say, yeah, why not just write to him? Let's just write to him and see. Mm -hmm. And just we couldn't believe our luck then when Adrian read the scripts and loved the scripts and wanted to do it. Wow. <laughs> it was just, it really was a kind of pinchy moment. Um, you know, I'd, I'd written this imagining him. Well, Sophie, uh, I can't wait to see what you've got in store next for the Hogan family because you've put them through a hell of a lot in these first two series. So... Um... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they all just go to they just go to a theme park and have a really nice time. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say just go um, to the arcades. Fun, really. yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're just like this is great, let's just have some cheeseburgers. Yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah, It'll all yeah. be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sophie, uh, thank you. And thank you to your geese fans in the background as well. Um That's fine. Uh, thank you for joining they're us. They're always willing to no, thank you very much. Uh, and Series 2 of Blood, as well as the Series 1 and 2 box set, are out on DVD and digital from the 11th of May. Back to you in the studio, Mark. Thanks, Paul. We are back with Liz Moore, one of the most talked about crime novelists in America at the moment. So, Liz, let's get back to Long Bright River. In your experience, how do uh, two sisters, as you say, born and raised in the same place by the same people, just a couple of years apart in age, end up taking such different paths in life? I mean, that's a hugely complicated question. But in, in terms of Mickey and Casey? Yeah, I think one of the big themes of the book that emerged after I had written a complete draft, I started sort of thinking about this, is a very old question, which is the idea of nature versus nurture. And um, I think it's not uncommon, in fact, for two siblings to take sort of opposite tacks as adults, um, especially children raised around addiction. Um, my own family has kind of like a history of addiction within it, and you see in different branches how some children who grow up around addiction um, 
inescapably like follow in the footsteps of their parents and themselves fall into addiction and others decide I'm never going near that stuff I'm going to do everything I can I will never dabble in a thing and I'll live a a life of extreme asceticism you know and, and they go in completely the opposite direction so I think in some ways that's the case here um they've they've become polarized although again as the book goes on there um, different questions about their nurture arise that we learn as we go. Um, do, you, do you believe there are genetic factors involved? I think so. Um, and, you know, there there are always, there are ongoing studies about um, whether specific genes might in fact play a role in a predisposition to addiction. Um, I don't think it's been conclusively proven in either way, but that's certainly a question that researchers are looking into. Okay, big question. Would you legalize drugs? So I, I think the wrong people are often punished for, um, for uh, a, an association with drugs. And we saw this, this is, we're diving into a different political discussion here, but uh, one big conversation in the U.S. right now is the, the huge difference between the way that victims of the opioid crisis are perceived with a lot of compassion and pity, sometimes, hopefully more, um, versus the way that victims of the epidemic of crack cocaine in the 80s were perceived. Now, of course, there was a big difference in demographics. Um, victims of the crack cocaine epidemic were largely African-American. Victims of the opioid crisis are largely white. So I'm certain that there's an element of racism involved in the way that each group has been perceived. Um, I'm glad that um, society is evolving in the direction of viewing people with um, addiction as the sort of the victims of a lot of different factors that go into play, including, um, for example, a genetic predisposition, but also in the case of the opioid ep epidemic, being victims of the kind of huge desire for profit on the part of pharmaceutical companies. Um, I think um, there are a lot of measures that should also go into place, like I am a proponent of safe injection sites. I'm a proponent of I don't know if this is a term that's used over here, just harm reduction in general, yeah. the idea of keeping people alive as the most important question, the most most pressing need is just to, to keep people alive and then everything else we can consider later. I mean, the, the reason I asked such a sort of bald question yeah. was I read, this, I read this incredible book a couple of years ago called Chasing the Scream mm -hmm. by Johan Harry, which is a history of, this the history of addiction and the war on drugs. Yeah. And he basically, at the end, concludes that the legalization or decriminalization of all drugs it's has to be the way forward. Correct, and he talks yeah. about, because people mm -hmm. think that's like it's never been done, yeah. and, and and he just cites the example of Portugal, mm -hmm. who did it, what, 15 years ago now? Yeah. And the the transformation of society has just been incredible in yeah. terms of, obviously, the number of deaths just yeah. dropping and, and overdoses and AIDS and yeah. violence and all the money that would have been wasted on the pointless war on drugs now goes into job creation and yeah. rehabilitation and housing. And you just think, hello, right. it's, you know, I mean, it's not something I can see ever happening in America. I don't know about you. But. It does seem, it seems far-fetched, yeah. but but I I actually buy that. I think it's, um, I think th that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, you, it's an incredibly, incredibly yeah, convincing, have to read it. I it's a wonderful book, Chasing book. the Scream. Um, so if, if a tourist was to wander into those parts of Philadelphia where the book is largely set. I mean, I'm guessing you'd probably advise them not to. Uh, but if they did, what kind of people would they be likely to meet? Uh, a huge array of people. Like any place, Kensington has um, a lot of different people in it. Um, 
And and I I also want to emphasize again that Kensington is very I mean it it's a it's really a neighborhood in transition so a lot of people would intentionally go to Kensington from outside of it because it has like a small press and it has a, a really good coffee shop and it has some good restaurants and um, and that you know but they are certainly adjacent to a corridor namely Front Street and Kensington Avenue where a lot there there is a high crime rate um, and crimes of various kinds um, and there's a a lot of you know, you you would see a lot of things openly that that you might not see elsewhere in the city. Um, yeah. But as you say, you would see all sorts of people because that is one of the most shocking things about addiction is mm-hmm. what an incredible leveler mm-hmm. it is. Exactly, it doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't respect. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It right. doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I was very struck by the the lists mm-hmm. in the book. The names of actual people at the front and back of the book that you so I mean it, it feels like a personal project anyway but that really mm-hmm. that list really brings it home mm-hmm. yeah the the those names that um appear on the, the the lists in the book are fictional I just sort of made them up um but they echo uh, something I s- started hearing um from people I've met in Kensington which is just this kind of like they would begin to talk about all the people they know who have um, who have died um, from overdose, and it and it would go kind of on and on and on, and it was a quick way to quantify the seriousness of the problem. I think. Well, it's it's obvious that in, in writing the book, you wanted to give, uh, you know, you wanted to honour those people and give mm-hmm. the give the victims of the opioid problem a face and a name and mm-hmm. and to speak up for them. But also, you're trying to write a page turning. Murder mystery, how, how? Not a murder mystery, but you know, yeah. a mystery novel. How do you get that balance right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's incredibly difficult tightrope to walk, isn't it? It certainly is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think humans have the instinct to want to listen to good stories and are and are often drawn into larger questions via the mechanism of a good story that keeps their attention. Um, um, there's there's been a lot of pushback, I think, rightfully against the idea of that it's a novelist's job to like humanize an issue or put a human face on an issue because um, people are people before a novelist gets there and calls them people. Um, so I I won't say that my goal was to kind of humanize an issue, but but certainly if it has the effect of um, of grabbing people's attention and directing resources to um, some of the important organizations that are working in Kensington to save lives, then that would be a nice side effect of the book. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know whether it's the same in the U.S., but but for a long time now over here, both readers and writers of crime fiction have been talking about crime fiction as the new social mm. novel. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, certainly over here, literary fiction tends to have kind of given up that ground. Mm-hmm. It's become rather more insular. Mm-hmm. You know, at its worst, it's the Hampstead dinner party novel. It's lots of, you know, coming of age novels, that kind of thing. And crime fiction increasingly has been tackling social issues mm-hmm. because a, a cop, if, you, if your central character is a cop, can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, no door can be shut in a cop's face. So a, cr- a crime novel is the ideal vehicle mm-hmm. to take on social issues. Is that something that you've now become convinced of having written one? <laughs> Um, or were you convinced of that anyway? Yeah, I I think that's an, a good theory, um, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, 
That said, unfortunately, I also have a soft spot for like completely navel gazing novels about MFA programs. Too. Oh, really? <laughs> I read those on the side. You need all sorts. Yeah, you, yeah. But 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 I mean, I'm a firm believer in what it, whatever your book is. Yeah. If you set out with an agenda, sure, you're going to write a bad book. That's I think absolutely true. Story I, yeah. story has got to come first. I right? teach that I teach creative writing at a university called Temple in Philadelphia, and. Um, there's nothing worse than knowing exactly what the moral of the story is like before you even dip a toe in the water, which with very beginning writers, sometimes like the title of the story will be whatever. Yeah. Every cloud has a silver lining or whatever it is, you know. Um, so knowing what the answer is to the question before you write is kind of the kiss of death for me. It's not it's it's not something I ever hope to do. Um, I like to have lots and lots of questions before me when I enter the writing of a novel that I only solve through the writing. You don't know yeah. the answer to. Right, exactly. So, I mean, a lot of our listeners are always very interested in, in process. Yeah. So you're not a big plotter. You're not no. a kind of, there's mm-hmm. no big whiteboard with everything planned out. No. In, and probably for that reason, it takes me quite a while to write a novel. Um, so my schedule seems to be every like four or five years I publish a novel and I am kind of on track to do the same again with whatever I write next. I typically only know about the characters. I I know who my characters are, and I usually have to find them really interesting. And I know where and when in time they are. And again, the the setting has to be really um, interesting to me. And I typically know like what the inciting incident is or the problem that they're facing. Um, like in this case, I knew that Casey would be missing. Um, but then the answer to why she was missing and where and and if she's alive or dead. Yeah, or if she would be found. If like she you would didn't be know found. That? I didn't know okay. any of that. I didn't know anything. Um, so that meant writing myself into a bind like over and over again and starting over, over, over and over again as well. Well, it clearly worked, uh, Liz. Congratulations on a fantastic book. Um, as someone who, like a, a lot of people, I'm sure, has been affected by some of these issues, mm-hmm. it wasn't always an easy read, um, but it was a book I absolutely could not put down. Um, before you go, Liz, putting you on the spot here, but we do always ask our guests if they can give us a, uh, a TV recommendation and a book recommendation, something you've read lately that you'd like to recommend, something you've seen on TV. Sure. Um, Crimey. Something that I've just finished that's really at the forefront of my mind, and I hope it's published in the UK, but I don't know for sure that it is or will be, um, is a book called The Third Rainbow Girl by Emma Eisenberg, which is um, nonfiction. It's true crime. It's an exploration of um, this sort of cultish group of hippies in the States called that call themselves the Rainbow People, two, two of whom were murdered um, in about, I think, 1980 or the early 80s um, uh, in Appalachia in the United States. And Emma, the author, um, herself spent a lot of time in West Virginia where it takes place. And so it's an excavation of her own history with the region and the murders that happened and sort of a re-examination of them. Is this a culty element? There is, it? Yeah, the, the the rainbow people still exist, and they, they would certainly object to being called a cult. Okay. I should make that clear. But they're a very peace-loving kind of group of hippies who gather in one spot in nature, maybe once a year, and they come from all over the country. And in this case, in in the in the year 1980 or so, they were hitchhiking from all over the country, and two young women on their way to the gathering just outside their destination were murdered. Um, and in a um, and questions about who did it are very interesting to examine. Okay, that sounds um, fantastic. Yeah. What about what about something that our viewers, listeners might like to watch? So I'm trying to think 
all of the things that I've been watching lately are kind of old news because I have two young kids, and so I'm like out of touch with what's most brand new. But are you just watching uh, Lost. I, and no, <laughs> the I Sopranos just, is quite good, apparently. It's, apparently, I heard of that. Um, I I've just started Mindhunter. Um, oh, fantastic! They've just axed it. They've just yeah, axed just it after that. two I know, seasons. And it's my, just my luck. I just, I'm on yeah. like episode three, and I'm enjoying that. Um, and again, an older show that I really loved is Top of the Lake. I watched that uh-huh. recently. Uh, again, um, which season? As I remember, and oh, the, I didn't even know there was it's more a than remake, one. I watched the it? complete first season. And a of remake Top of, of a New Zealand show, or am I getting? Well, I it think is it a New is. Zealand show, right? No, the, I watched the. I think there's been more than one version oh, of it, but right? there were two seasons of it. I think. Well, I watched the I, one set in New Zealand with right. um, Holly Hunter. Yeah. Yeah. I oh, well, some fabulous recommendations there. Um, there we go. A, a huge thanks to Liz Moore for joining us. And if it hasn't been blindingly obvious, I cannot recommend Long Bright River enough. It is published by Hutchinson. Remember, you can watch all the best crime drama every day on Alibi, available on Sky, Virgin Media, BT and Talk Talk. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then yes, I'm going to say it. Please, pretty please, review, rate and subscribe. It makes a huge difference and puts a little spring in our step to know that you're enjoying what we do. We might even do a little dance. If you didn't enjoy it, just keep your gob shut. We'll be back with another brand new episode of A Stab in the Dark very soon. Until then, a special thanks to our producers Paul Hirons and Joel Porter. My name's Mark Billingham and thanks for listening. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>